All right. Well, it's it's good to be with you guys um, again. Let's see. Does this does this one work? Shall I use this one? Okay. Um, woo. All right. So um, I've been here a few times before, and uh, how does this thing tighten? It doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. It doesn't. All right. We'll just put it right here. How about that? Okay. I'll just project. How about that? (laughs) If anybody can't hear, you can come up. And I'm going to get a little bit closer. Um, Yeah, so um, it's real great to be be with you guys again tonight. Um, For those of you who do not know me, my name is uh, Jeff. Last name uh, White or Blanco, whatever you want. Some people call me Reverend Blanco, whatever. Um, but I am a taco, actually, which means white on, I'm white on the outside, but puro Latino inside. So, <laughs> uh, so I grew up in Guatemala. My parents were missionaries there, uh, so we've spent a long time there. Um, Jonathan, as you know, he's not here tonight because they just had their first little baby, and um, when you have your children, the first couple of weeks, it's just like a total tornado and uh, a storm, so... So that's why they're not, he's not here. But it's, I'm very glad to be back with you. Um, as you may know, uh, uh, we're going to be starting RUF at, uh, at UTEP next year, which is a pretty exciting thing. And uh, this guy named Edward right here is going to be helping me get that going. And so I'm really excited about that. And um, so, all right, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. And the... The passage that we're looking at in 1 Samuel 24, in some ways this is a, this is a tough passage because it deals with, with issues of uh, injustice from a king named Saul. It deals with the, the question of revenge and of God's judgment. And so as Rochelle was praying about uh, the issue of abortion, we realize that there are many things that are just t- tough situations and tough issues and and this passage deals with some of those, just the big issue of injustice. Um, and if there are things that are hard to hear, uh, there's a proverb that basically says, uh, better are the wounds from a friend than the butt kisses from an enemy. That's a, a paraphrase from Proverbs 27. But, but I'm, uh, whatever we, we look at this passage, we mean this, I mean this as friends. Okay? And so look, we're going to read 1 Samuel 24. Uh, verses 1 through 19. Okay. So 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 19. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to see David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to go to the bathroom. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose, and he stealthily cut a corner off of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. 
So David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, and he left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David, he also arose, and he went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wickedness comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For a man, if he finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Let me pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, Father, give us eyes to see your son Jesus. We pray all of these things by the powerful name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the background to this, this passage where we are right now is that there's a guy named King Saul. And Saul is really jealous of David, the future king. And so Saul is sitting under this tree with a spear in his hand. And he's just having a pity party for himself. He's saying, doesn't anybody care about my feelings? Why doesn't anybody think about me? He says in 1 Samuel 22. He says, don't you know that this guy named David, he's lurking in the back shadows and he's trying to kill me. Doesn't anybody care about my feelings too? He's like, you know, an adolescent kid in the most, you know, passions of their, their own problems. And he, he's all about himself. Now the truth is he's, he's complaining that David is trying to kill his life, but really Saul has tried to kill David three times already. And so he says, Does, is anybody going to tell me where David is? And this guy um, tells him about how David had gone to this, this town uh, where there were a bunch of priests. And he got refuge from the priests. And so Saul, in his rage and his anger, he went to the town where the priests were. And what he did is he killed 85 priests that were completely innocent Only one escaped and ran to David. And it says in the Scriptures that at the city of priests, Saul put to sword both man and woman, child and infant, 
ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. It was a complete and total injustice out of revenge and vengeance. And so, so where our scripture passage brings us is that Saul's in hot pursuit of David in the mountains. So, you know, it's out in the, uh, the wilderness and it's like he's basically climbing from the Franklin Mountains to the Oregon Mountains to Waco Tanks. And he's going through all of these mountains chasing after David and he finally is going to catch up to him. And David is in this cave. And nobody knows where he is. But Saul decides, I've got to go to the bathroom. And so he goes up and climbs up into a cave, and it's dark in the cave. And literally, the, the way the text is talking about is that he sits down, covers his feet, is that he, he's sitting down to use the restroom in a dark cave. And lo and behold, who's in the cave? But David himself, lurking in the cave. You see, this is a, a, such a crazy story. And, and one of the questions is, why, why does the Scriptures tell this story of David you know, in the cave hiding and this King Saul who's chasing him happens to, to walk into the cave to take a poop? What's this about? Well, the main passage, the main reason that, that Samuel includes this is to say, uh, it is stated in verse 16 of this passage, particularly you see it actually in verses 17 and 18, where Saul starts to talk and he says this, after David did not kill him. He says this in verse 18, and he says, you have declared, uh, verse 17, he says, you, David, are more righteous than I because you repaid me for good, whereas I have repaid you for evil. See, the passage, what this is telling us, it confirms that this guy David, who's going to be the future king, is a righteous and good man, and Saul is not. Why? Why? Because when Saul was pursuing after David, David did not kill him in the cave. When Saul was doing evil to David, David did good to Saul. And this is a a model for us of the Christian life. In fact, this is what establishes David as a righteous man in Saul's eyes. That when Saul did evil to him, David repaid him with good. This is the way that we're supposed to be as well in the Christian life. Um, in, a book, in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, in Romans 12, uh, this guy who wrote it, Paul, he starts to explain some of the fundamental marks of, Christi- of being a Christian. Um, and quoting from Proverbs, he says in Romans 12, verses 20 and 21, Look, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Christians live like in the world. It's what our calling is to be. It's what David exemplified. And by his exemplifying it, this is how his rightness, his goodness... His ethical standing in the world was established with Saul. And it is with us in the world as well. You may know uh, one of the famous stories of missionaries back in the 1950s. The story about uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Satan. These guys were missionaries to a headhunter tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle. And they had thought that they had made safe uh, contact with this tribe. 
And so what these five missionaries were going to do was they were going to they fly into this jungle. And they got out of the airplane to go and tell them uh, about the gospel. And this headhunter tribe had been dis- devastated by revenge killing after revenge killing after revenge killing. And so these men, they, they get out on the sandbank. And what happens is immediately the, some of the men from the tribe, they, they rush out onto the sandbar and they spear all of the five men to death. Now this tribe, what they were expecting was that they were expecting the white people were going to come and bring revenge upon them. And so they ran into the jungle. You know what ended up happening? In that story, the wives of these missionaries were able to establish medical contact with them and provide medical, medical health. And they eventually actually lived and moved into the tribe. So that instead of expecting revenge, those who killed their husbands, these women paid them back with good. And what happened was that many people in the Warani tribe became Christians. Because it ended that cycle of revenge killing after revenge killing. You see, there is something powerful in your and my life, especially as Christians, when, when people do us harm and we repay them with good. Or you could think about uh, the persuasive power of the black church during the civil rights movement. You know, there were, there were two major um, advocates in the civil rights movement. There was Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, and then there was Martin Luther King and the black church. And there was, they were basically polar opposites in how to deal with violence and social injustice. And Malcolm X's story is that he grew up as a preacher's son, actually, in a Christian background. But his dad was murdered by racists. And so his mom, after, have, became a widow of eight kids, and she went to the psychological depression, and the kids were eventually taken into foster care. And so Malcolm X got mad. And he ended up in prison, and when he was in prison, he hated all religion, and he was actually known, uh, given the nickname of Satan. But when he was in religion, he uh, found Allah. And as he got out of prison, he would um, try to go to some of the black churches in Harlem and recruit people out of the black church and to join the nation of Islam. And one of the things that he had in his ethics of violence was self-defend violence, and retaliatory violence. And I will read to you about both self-defense violence that he says and retaliatory violence that he says. And I'm not arguing against self-defense violence that he he argues about, but I want you to pay attention to both what he says about self-defense and uh, retaliatory revenge violence. He says this about self-defense. In areas where our people are the constant victims of brutality, when your churches are being bombed and your little girls are being murdered and the government seems unable or unwilling to protect them, we should form rifle clubs that can be used to defend our lives and our property in times of emergency. See, one of the things that that Malcolm X was a strong proponent of was self-defense. And I'm not saying that we uh, as Christians are not called to self-defense. See, there's a lot of things in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. He talks about, you know, uh, if, if you lust, to cut your eye out, right? Or if someone hates you, to turn the other cheek. 
And what we have to recognize is that there is some hyperbole in what he's saying there. Okay? So we can't necessarily say that the Sermon on the Mount is, abs- is taking a statement of absolute uh, pacifism. But the question and the challenge is that if we believe in uh, self-defense violence and that there's some goodness that can be there, the question that we have to ask is what makes us different, different than Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam? Because I think that sometimes self, violence in the name of self-defense can follow a slippery slope into retaliatory violence. And this is the very next thing that he would say about violence. He said this about retaliatory violence. He says, that's why I am a Muslim. Because it is a religion that teaches you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he's particularly talking about retaliation to the KKK. And he says, look, if the KKK terrorizes your children's, we can go tit for tat. Tit for tat, is what he said. So if they kill one of yours, you kill one of theirs. They terrorize your people, you terrorize their people. And I will tell you that in the Sermon on the Mount and from this passage, that is what Jesus, and that is what this passage is expressly forbidding. It's that in Matthew 5 says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see it saying, we do not follow revenge violence. And in contrast to that, Malcolm X, uh, in contrast to Malcolm X, we had Martin Luther King in the black church and their, pat, their, vision, their vision of nonviolent resistance. I think that vision of nonviolent resistance is what is resembled with by David here in the cave. You see, it was when it came to civil rights, much of America ended up saying of the black church as they did not hurt back those who hurt them. They, they said, as David says here, or Saul says of David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And if you think about civil rights, whose names do we remember? Who had the, who had the power that influenced a nation and brought it change to a nation? Is it Malcolm X and the nation of Islam, or was it Martin Luther King and the black church's vision of nonviolent resistance. So both these stories, I think one of the things that shows us is that there is a power in when people do us harm that we repay them with good instead. And this is a a, a really important and powerful uh, witness and argument for the Christian faith. When we do good to those who do evil to us. you know why? The reason it's such a powerful argument for our Christian faith is because it is actually a picture of the most fundamental message of Christianity. See, the fundamental message of Christianity is that the cross is the center of our faith. The message of the cross is the claim that Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ died for His enemies, Romans 5. And so this is what the uh, this is the New Testament's fundamental assertion that Christ died for his enemies to reconcile them to God. We sing this song uh, sometimes in in our church. It says, "Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, 
ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You see, when we come to Good Friday in a few weeks, one of the things that we recognize is that the crowds on Good Friday, they all yelled out, crucify him. And then they said, may his blood be upon us and our children. You see, to be a Christian in some sense is simply to state I was in that. I am one of those in those crowds who was saying crucify him. You and I were ones yelling to kill the Son of God. We were his enemies. And when we yelled crucify him and we paid him with death on the cross, he repaid us with salvation and forgiveness. He repaid us for good when we paid him with evil. So one of the greatest apologetic arguments for the Christian faith will be how you respond to those who have done you harm. And you know that as Christians, if if you're a Christian, that it is those moments when your friends, your family, your co-workers hurt you and you respond in retaliation that they'll point it out to you. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, um, one morning before the school bus was, uh, was coming, a, gr- a bunch of us were waiting to get on the school bus, and there was this kid who was so annoying. And nobody really liked him very much. And uh, he just embarrassed me so bad in the middle of the school bus uh, line waiting to get on the bus. And the, what had happened was I had actually farted at the school bus stop, and he pointed it out. He said, oh, look, Jeff farted. It smells so bad. And it was really embarrassing. And so you know what I did? Because he had made fun of me. I said to him, dude, nobody likes you and you smell like B.O. Really, nobody likes you at all. And it may may seem not like a lot, but it was. We got on the bus and he said to me, Jeff, I thought you were a Christian and I thought you were my friend. See, when we retaliate with our words, with our vitriolic, venomous, vindictive words, this is something to say about our witness. And if, if you are like me, when we retaliate with our words, we can, you should seek the grace to turn from that and, and recognize the gospel, which is that you and I, we spewed out vitriolic words to Christ on the cross, but he repaid us with forgiveness. So, um, one of the other things then that we see is that this is, so this is a really powerful example of, of, the, of the gospel. But this is very difficult to do. Refraining from giving in to revenge is very hard. Because when David does not bring vengeance upon Saul in the cave. He's letting Saul live another day to chase him. And there's a few reasons that, that he gives restraint from revenge. And David, think about David's men in this cave. Okay, David's men have been following him. And all of a sudden, your enemy walks into a cave that you don't, that, and he doesn't know you're in there. And he's vulnerable. I mean, they were excited. They were delighted. They said so in verse 4 of this passage. He said, And the men of Israel, of David, said, Here's the day which the Lord said, Behold, I will give your enemies into your hand, and you shall do what you want with him. 
But David, you know, there's a lot of logic to what, what they're saying. They're saying, look, this guy's come into your cave. God has brought him here. This is all of God's sovereignty. You can do whatever you want with him now. And think about the injustices that he has done. He's killed 85 innocent people and their, wife and their, and their wives and all of their children. This is about justice. But, Saul, but David has his reasons that he does, and he says, hold on a minute. In verse 6, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. And again, in verse 8, when he comes out uh, to the cave and, and Saul's on his way down uh, the mountain, he says, my Lord, the king. And then again, in verse 10, he says, I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, one of the things that this is teaching us right here is that David, he has a high view of the kingship authority that Saul has been given, even though he recognizes that Saul has been completely unethical. So David has great respect for Saul's office as a king, as being anointed, being appointed by God, even though he cannot respect Saul. And he calls God to witness on Saul's wickedness. So maybe you have a self-centered boss or a professor that just doesn't like you. One of the things that we recognize is that we, as Christians, we don't go around trying to make their lives horrible or seek to destroy them. There is this sense that David has understanding that this guy is in a position of authority. And Paul in Romans 13 makes the argument that, that there are governing authorities and other authorities that have been instituted by God and that these are God's servants. Even in the context of Romans in which Paul is writing is talking about Caesars of Rome who were horrible men. That even these guys are God's servants. And so... You know what it says to be subjected to them means? And this is difficult. It says pay your taxes. This is exactly what Paul says. <laughs> pay your taxes. Because of this, you pay your taxes for the authorities are ministers of God. So it's tax season and some of you guys have jobs. You may not like different government, different leaders, different things. But one of the things that we're still required to as Christians to do is to pay our taxes. And I know this is a very un-American thing to say because we always like to start out the story of being Americans as a bunch of people raided a boat in Boston Harbor and threw out the tea and said, no taxation without representation. But, they, but Paul says here, pay your taxes in Romans. And David himself recognizes that Saul has been in Authority, But then the question that we must ask following up is, what about when these servants of God hate God, hate God's people, and hurt other people also? What do we do about that? What do we do about that? Do we start a riot and cut their heads off? Do we throw tea overboard? What do we do? Some of you may have um, seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah? Some of you, yes? I love musicals. And I love Fiddler on the Roof. We actually watched it on our honeymoon. So, uh, 
And you know how it is. If I were a rich man, so at the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof, there's a scene where they're talking about the people of the town, and they go to the scene where they zoom in on the beloved rabbi, right? And they say to the rabbi, Rabbi, and this is in the early late 1800s, may I ask you a question? Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? And the Tsar being the Caesar, the king of Russia. And what you need to know is that at this point in Russian history, the Jews had been... Uh, uh, had oppressive, you know, uh, systemic anti-Semitism for hundreds of years. And so they asked, may I ask you a question? Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? And the rabbi responds, a blessing for the Tsar? Of course! May God bless the Tsar and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> but the, 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 the rabbi's um, joke is actually a prayer that's not too far off from what the Bible tells us. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for them. We pray. You pray for your bosses. You pray for your professors. You pray for your local government leaders that you don't like. If you find yourself frustrated with them, you ever find yourself absolutely frustrated with authority? Absolutely frustrated, disgusted? Pray for them. Pray for them. Do you ever think that Daniel in the Old Testament was disgusted with Babylon or King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he got thrown into the lion's den. He was known as a man of prayer. So this is one of the things that we do with authority. But furthermore than that, rather than resorting to revenge, we see that David responds to Saul with a powerful rebuke. So he doesn't just give in to Saul. He actually responds to Saul with a powerful rebuke. And this is what is evidenced in him cutting off a corner of the robe, okay? So remember, David sneaks up behind Saul, and instead of cutting his head off, he cuts off a corner of the robe. Why does he do that? Well, I think it, there's an obvious reason. One is that it, it's actually stated in the passage, in verse 11 of this passage. He says, See my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of the robe, and I didn't cut off your head, See that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life. You see, the corner of the robe for David, it's the primary evidence that he never had an intention to harm Saul, even though Saul had been going around slandering, saying, this guy David just wants to kill me. This corner of the robe is, see, I had the chance, but I didn't kill you. But there's actually more to it than that, even. Some of you may have been... Um, to the west side of El Paso, and some of you may have made it down to El Paso. There are some people from the east side of El Paso that have never made it to the west side. But, <laughs> but in the west side of El Paso, there's a, there's a Jewish community. And uh, last week, my wife and I were, were walking down the street, and there was this, uh, a Jewish guy walking down the street. And on the corner of his shirt, he had four tassels. Now, is that just some kind of really hipster fashion statement? No. 
That actually goes back to the Old Testament, to the first five books of the Bible. And there's a rich meaning in the corner of the robes, these tassels. And he says this. It says about the meaning of the tassels in Numbers 15. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout all of their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel. And the tassel shall be for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So the tassels are supposed to be a reminder of God's law, of God's goodness, of what God requires. So as Saul's running around doing this wickedness, these tassels were supposed to be a reminder of God's goodness and of his commands. And so when David cuts off a corner of the tassel and he shows the tassel to Saul, he is saying, see Saul, see this tassel? You have forgotten the commands of the Lord. You are following your own heart and your own eyes. It is a humble but bold rebuke to one who is in his authority, but he still respects the office. See, the point is that David gives a Saul, a, to Saul a rebuke rather than seeking revenge. See, we oftentimes think that there's only two options, that the options are either you lie down and give in, or you take your revenge. But David is showing us here that when there is injustice to you, and people harm you and do evil to you, that a humble rebuke of speaking the truth by your life and by what you say is neither giving in nor is it revenge. So when David uh, doesn't exact his retribution on Saul, the thing is that we are reminded again that it, it gives Saul another day to go and fight and attack David. And so the crazy thing is two chapters later, Saul is chasing David again. And here's one thing that I want you to recognize is that if you don't take revenge on your enemies, whatever situation you feel really aggravated about, you have to trust God with that. It takes trusting God. Ultimately, restraining from taking revenge takes trusting God. And this is what David does. He exercised restraint from revenge because he knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord God. Verses 12 and 15 says this. He says this to Saul. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. This is why he can say, but my hand will not be against you. You see, in order to not take revenge, you have to trust in the Lord. It requires trusting that God will bring about His perfect justice when you have been sinned against. That it's in His hand. See, revenge is always, revenge is always tempting us to take justice into our own hands. This is exactly what revenge is always trying to do. The clash between justice and revenge, I think it's really illustrated really well in this movie called Megamind. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Megamind, but in, the, in Megamind, there's an argument between the evil genius Megamind, and, uh, who's played by Will Ferrell, and the superhero Metro Man, who's played by Brad Pitt. So imagine Will Ferrell and Brad Pitt having this argument. Okay? 
So Megamind says, over here, old friend, in case you've noticed, you've fallen right into my trap. And Metroman says, you can't trap justice. It's an idea, a belief. And Megamind says, well, even the most heartfelt beliefs can get corroded over time. And Megamind, Metroman says, justice is a non-corrosive metal, but metals can be melted by the heat of revenge. It's revenge, it's revenge, and it's best cold, served cold. But it can be easily reheated in the microwave of evil. You see, revenge melts justice. It does. And revenge can be easily reheated in the microwave of evil. And so revenge, we think it's justice, but it melts down justice into something ugly. I'll give you a real-life example of how revenge melts justice. There's a book about New Mexico and the Southwest called Blood and Thunder, and it tells the story of Kit Carson in the 1800s, and it's a really fascinating book. So on one occasion, Kit Carson and an expedition are in Northern California, and he's with a couple of Delaware scouts, and they're scouting out the area, and they go to sleep. And in their sleep, um, this other tribe comes, and they bludgeon three of Carson's friends two Delaware scouts and one of his best friends. They bludgeon them and they wake up and they fight off the attack and they shoot back and they keep the the enemy tribe from coming and, and destroying all of them. So they do that and the next morning they wake up and they're angry. So the next morning they, they wake up after burying the their dead, they go around the lake and they sneak up on a fishing village called Dokwas. And just as they're noticed by the villagers in Dokdakwas, Carson tells them to open fire and charge. And so they chase the people. And I'm going to quote to you. It says, in a few minutes, Carson and his men had killed 21 Indians. Frantically, the surviving villagers, they scattered for the hills, and the Delaware scouts slaughtered many of them in their hiding places. Some of the Klamath boys swam away beneath the water, breathing through hollow reeds. It was, as Carson might say, a perfect butchery. By any standards, it was pure and literal overkill. Now, the tragedy of Dokwas is deepened by the fact that most scholars now agree that Carson's group, in their blood vindictiveness, chose the wrong tribe to lash out against. The band of Indians who killed Carson's men were likely the neighboring Modocs. The Klamaths and the Modocs, though culturally related, were bitter enemies. So they took revenge on a tribe that didn't even do anything to them, just in their blind vindictiveness, and they killed 21 people. You see, revenge melts justice down into something horrid and unrecognizable. Payback is blind to justice, and it mounts injustice upon injustice upon injustice. And our temptation is that we're going to think, no, God doesn't see, God isn't interested, so we have to take it into our own hands. In contrast, what Scripture always tells us is that God, the Lord, is not blind to injustice. He is not. In Psalm 139, a beloved psalm, David says this, If I were to say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, David knows that justice is not going to be happening in a dark cave. God brings it. 
Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, I know that in our country, and for many of, of you, the wrath of God, it's hard to stomach. The judgment of God is a difficult thing to believe in. But that's particularly so in our relatively safe suburban American context. But when you have faced real injustice, when people around the world who face real injustice, it is actually the conviction that God Himself will avenge wrongdoers, wrongdoing, that that strengthens our hands to feed our enemies, not to kill them. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. On the contrary, you feed your enemy. Vengeance is mine. I will repay the Lord. It is in His hands. So what proof can I give you? And I'll close with this. What proof can I give you that vengeance is truly in God's hands? That justice and judgment is in His hands? It's the cross and the resurrection of Christ. These are the two things for us as Christians that prove to us that justice is in God's hands. You see, at the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath against our sin as perpetrators. He died for us, His enemies, taking our judgment upon Himself. And so the blood has already been spilled for those who receive Christ's blood. And at the same time, on the cross... Think about it. Jesus understands the pain of those who suffer wrongly at the hands of sinful men. He knows what it means to suffer wrongly. He knows about that. And the resurrection of Christ, that three days later He rose from the grave, that He's not dead, that He right now rules with God the Father, and that He has sent us His Holy Spirit to bring light to the dark places. And one day, one day He will return in justice in His hands. The book of Revelation tells a story um, to Christians who are being persecuted, who are tempted either to just lie down and give in or to bring revenge. And this is what it says, Beloved, grace to you and peace from Christ. Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the, met, the dead, the judge of kings on earth. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. You see, Jesus, He will return with justice and so that means actually that we don't have to take justice into our own hands. For we will just find in our hands revenge, but He will bring His perfect justice. There's a RUF hymn about Jesus that says this, and I'll close with this. Hail to the Lord's anointed. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed. His reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captives free, to take away transgressions and to rule in equity. He comes in succor, speedy to those who suffer wrong. El es socorro pronto a los que sufren mal. He comes to help the poor and needy and bid the weak be strong. Let me pray. Jesus, we find in our hearts 
oftentimes wanting to be vindictive. And the words of our mouth are so oftentimes filled with vengeful, revengeful words. May we grasp more clearly that you understand pain and that you died for us when we were your enemies and repaid us with good. And may we trust in you, Lord, that even when we don't see justice now, we know that, God, you will bring your perfect justice. So may that truth strengthen us to do good to those who hurt us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.